Please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll continue our discussion. Last couple weeks, we've been going through the Old Testament quotations in Hebrews chapter 1 and talking about the argument. We might recall that the argument at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, of chapter 1, is essentially, once you get past the very beginning, it is a contrast between the sun and the angelic host. The angelic host created, the sun eternal, the angelic host slaves, servants, the sun king, anointed, reigning. Hebrews chapter 2 is going to build on that and not be quite the same. Uh, We can see here at the very beginning how he will ultimately build on that. Reading here at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The therefore is based on the argument of chapter 1. Angels said, often mediated the, the revelation of God to man. All right? And so therefore, since they were mediators of God's revelation to man, what they said was very important. However, all right, if the Son revealed something, because the Son is greater than the angels, His revelation is greater, therefore your culpability for not listening to the revelation of the Son is higher. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Of course, he's now talking about revelation post the coming of and ascension of the Son. And that's what the purpose of this paragraph. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And what he's talking about here is not what the angels said, but about what comes through Christ. If what they said was good, and if you neglected that, you were judged, how much worse is it for us if we neglect all right, what has been revealed? As he continues on. It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us, by those who heard. The Lord in this case being Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Which makes me wonder, maybe the author of Hebrews is not someone who knew Jesus in his lifetime, because he includes himself in the us, perhaps. Not necessarily an ironclad argument, but it's something to throw in. It was declared to us by those who heard. Who are those who heard? The disciples and various other people. So we're not just talking about the, the eleven. All right, and Paul, we would so totally be talking about all of those whom Jesus spent time with in his ministry, and there was a lot more than just the disciples that he did that. But still, all right, it was attested to those by, to those to us by those who heard, while God also bearing witnesses or witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And so the revelation ultimately came through the angels, sure, in various ways. But in terms of the revelation of Jesus, it came through the Son. And then that was attested to us by those who heard. And that attestation was confirmed by other things. Signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, of course, this was written within the lifetime of the apostles. And there certainly would have been signs and miracles and wonders. For the modern reader, we might look at this and go, well, we don't have this. I haven't seen signs and I haven't seen miracles. And that may be the case. Um, Maybe some of you have. What I would challenge you to think of is especially this last piece. Because this last piece makes all of you and myself culpable, all right, for listening to the message of Christ. And that is, it is borne witness, what what bears witness? That the Holy Spirit distributes gifts according to His will within the church. So, yeah, we haven't seen wonders and miracles, but when a, a, a teacher or a preacher speaks to you, the Word of God, and the power of God, 
you are culpable based on this. All right? That is someone speaking for God, just like an angel. All right? Based on a gift of the Spirit. All right? You have no excuse, in other words. You cannot neglect this thing. Essentially, the theme here is in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect? And the answer is, because he doesn't say, well, here's how we're going to escape. Nope. There is no escape. Now, this is a theme that we will also see later on. Uh, If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter chapter 10, we can start in verse 26. And we get the sense of this because this is repeated. This was, this was a major message of this particular sermon or book. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the author of Hebrews, there is no escape. Or Hebrews chapter 12, turn probably a page or two. In verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At this time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God, for our God, is a consuming fire. There is there both evident at our points of hope, and judgment. All right? God is a consuming fire is a good thing and a bad thing. It entirely depends on your status. All right? As a purifying fire, he is good. As a destructive fire, he can be quite negative. All right? So this is a major theme for the book of Hebrews, all right? And if you want to please turn back to chapter 2, this comes out basically out of his argument, all right? As do the other ones. They build on the, the later theological points he's going to make, all right? We have no excuse. God makes us, God, God gives us his revelation, all right? We have to obey. If we do not, we have no excuse because he has witnessed it through his gifts of his spirit to his people. Now let's move on. So for the next paragraph, and we're going to plan today to focus on really the just the next five, six verses. He's now going to move on a little bit. All right? He's going to make another theological point. Uh, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. The somewhere specifically is Psalm 8. I, I would imagine your Bibles have a uh, reference to that. So this was this is Psalm eight, four through six. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. All right. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, we left, he, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And we won't quite go through all of that. All right, so here's what we're about to do. All right, we're about to break, so those who need sustenance can get some. When you get together, I want you to to spend several minutes, and I want you to look at Psalm 8. All right, Psalm 8 is a short psalm. Get a good, thorough understanding of Psalm 8. All right. I want you to break up in groups of two or three. So this is not big groups. And I want you all, those two people, ideally maybe three, all right, I want you to discuss. What is this psalm about? What's the big picture? What's he trying to prove? Okay? And so I'll give you seven, uh, uh, probably about seven minutes to do that right now, which should give you a little bit of time to run and get a donut if you want one. So, all right, go, go ahead. Seven minutes. All right, groups of two or three, find find some partners. Discuss. And think about who are the relevant characters in that psalm, all right? Name name the characters. Give y'all two. 
and just I have some extras. So you all get two of those in a minute. Hmm? That is the ESV. Ignore the piece of paper I just gave to you. It will be relevant in a minute. about a minute and a half to figure it all out. Totally do it. Let's figure out what it's about, you know? What's it about, do you know? Okay. You got it? Okay, I'll call on you then. Let's discuss. The psalm, regardless of the New Testament context in which it is quoted. First, let's understand the psalm simply by itself. What is the psalm as a whole about? Anybody? I mean, it's Okay, it is a creation psalm. Okay, keep going. Praising God. Praising God. Keep going. What are we specifically praising Him for? We're not. The psalm is not praising Him for creating, though that's clearly a major part of it. What is the psalm praising uh, praising God for? For man's role, right? That's the specific thing. Yes, God's praiseworthy because He created. Especially here, the marvel of the psalmist is you created everything and then you put it all under man. Right? So that's definitely the major theme here. Now, one team noticed something strange in terms of uh, translation. 
Uh, did anybody else notice anything weird? It would all depend on what translations you're using. If, any, if no one else did, and this you would have to, uh, well, you might see it depending on your translation of the Old Testament. You would more likely see it if you were comparing it to Hebrews. Okay, uh, maybe not. So I will let this team talk about what they saw. What did you see that was strange? Um, in Hebrews, it's translated lower than the angels. Mm-hmm. And then here it's translated heavenly beings. All right, so everybody look exactly right. So everybody look at 8.5 in your Old Testament, all right? The ESV has, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, all right? So that's what the ESV has. It has heavenly beings. Um, What else do we have? All right, we have, uh, so here's the ESV, and we have God. What translation is God from? What's that, AS? Okay, so the KJV, oh, the NAS, okay. The KJV will have this, I think. Actually, let me erase that, because maybe not. The NIV has what? Okay. Okay. Uh, what's your translation? In KJV. In KJV. Does anybody have the KJV so we can see? It's yes. It's lower than the angels. It's lower than the angels. Okay. All right. All right. So New American Standard's the odd man out. Anybody else got anything? Uh, mine also has uh, Holman. Which one is it? Holman. Holman. Okay. Okay, so there's a wide, wide variety. Um, that's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, if you're not familiar with it. So, what's going on here? Is this the same thing as our Deuteronomy passage, where there's a textual critical uh, issue? And the answer is no. This one is purely theological and translational. All right? Um, there's a, you know, we sort of talked about some of this last time. There's a number of words for God in the Old Testament. Right? There's the... Um, there's the covenant name for God, Yahweh, all right, which is, you know, in English, you'd spell like that, all right? And um, another one that you'll see in certain praise psalms in English, all right? Adonai, you might know what that means? All right, that will, that's generally or often translated Lord. Then there's another word called Elohim, all right? And this is often when it's talking about God, and that's the key here. It talks about other things than God. Um, it t- it's translated upper G, God. Okay? So generally speaking, when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll often see Lord, uh, you'll often see Lord, Lord, or Lord God, where one of them is in the small caps, the, the upper caps, where that would point that that's the covenant name of God. All right? And uh, often... All right, the other one would be here, or this one. If it's Lord, Lord, all right, or Lord God, you'll see these combinations in the Old and New Testament. In this particular case, it's this one specifically. All right, because Yahweh is not ambiguous at all. There is no translational issues there. We're like, yes, we know exactly who that is. Elohim is genuinely ambiguous. And we've gone over this, so I'm sure you remember all the details, right? But Elohim can refer, generally speaking, to a non-physical, a spiritual being in the Old Testament. For example, when the uh, spirit of Samuel is brought up, all right, or potentially brought up by a witch, by Saul. Remember this story? Um, When the witch refers to seeing the spirit of Samuel, the witch calls Samuel and Elohim, all right? She's not at that point saying that he is, in fact, the one true God. Uh, that is not the case. What, he's, what she's basically saying is, uh, he is a spirit being. Uh, if you want to, you can read, for example, um, ver, uh, Psalm 82. We're in the Psalms. Let's just point, go there real quick. 
Now, some translations, because this is legitimately hard, and people have to think real hard about this one, um, but you've ultimately got in Psalm 82 the word Elohim, just verse 1, used in two separate meanings. All right? Psalm 82, verse 1, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. All right? Elohim is there, and Elohim is in the midst of the Elohim. All right? And so the first one would refer to the one God. The second one referred to the angelic host. All right? So it's, Elohim is a generic word for spiritual being that is often used for God. Therefore, when you as a translator run up against this verse, you go, which one is it? Because you have to always decide. Anytime someone's translating the Old Testament, they have to figure that out. More often than not, it's referring to the one true God. And so it's easy by context to go, clearly the one true God. In this particular case, all right, um, you, you're going to you're going to have a problem, all right, and it's entirely appropriate for the New American Standard and the Holman Christian Standard Bible and others to translate it as God. From a Hebrew perspective, it's entirely fine to do so. Or for somebody else to translate it, heavenly beings or angels, all right, and in this case, these are roughly synonymous. Because angels are a part of the heavenly beings, all right? And so, which one is actually correct? At that point, it's no longer language. It's theology. It's context. Was man made a little lower than God, or is man made a little lower than the heavenly host? That's the theological question. You could certainly make the case that, well, man was actually created way lower than God, because God is of a completely different category. And on that reason, you might say, therefore, it can't be that he was created a little lower than God, because man is actually significantly lower than God. You could make that argument. Or you could say, at least in terms of status, man was given rule over the earth. That makes man a little lower than God. Sure, who's above man? Well, God is, and so therefore they're a little lower than him in the ranking. All right. Ultimately, it doesn't matter a great deal, all right? um, because what the point of the psalm is, right, is what we already discussed. The psalmist is praising God for, putting, for creating and then putting man, shockingly, all right, putting man over that creation. This is a major responsibility and something to praise God for. So really, it's purely a translational thing. All right. Ontologically, are we just a little bit, in terms of our being, are we just a little bit lower than angels? Is that what he's trying to say? Or are we maybe talking about our role, and we are a little bit lower than God? So it's just a translational thing. It's pick either one. Now, the author of Hebrews definitely has a strong opinion about this. All right. Author of Hebrews used the Septuagint. The Septuagint writers, when they read this, they were like, Definitely angels. Boom. And so you get that in the Septuagint. And you've got the author of Hebrews totally translating that at, or using that and going, it's angels. And this is naturally going to make these guys go, well, we have an inspired writer of the New Testament using a translation that clearly calls it angels and not God. Therefore, we'll go with angels. All right? And so that may be why you've got the majority in this particular case. Are you going to raise your hand, Bill? Mm-hmm. Um, the verse 7, the Lord in Hebrews, is a word in between little and lower. It says, you made him for a little while lower yeah. The old one didn't have that. I actually don't recall if that's in the Septuagint. I will check while y'all are doing your next activity so I can tell you. So it's, it's a good question. Because, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, he's obviously using it to refer to Christ. Right? It makes sense. Because You're getting ahead of us. Okay, so but yeah, yeah, yeah. We're about to get there. Yes. Totally. We're, we are totally about to go there. Absolutely. Okay, so... Jumped ahead. Now, what, now we're going to go back to Hebrews. And I gave you each, and you'll use your same groups. 
gave you each a selection. In this particular case, I gave you all the same selection. This is the ESV. And I gave you all the same selection, not because it's better, but because for us to have this discussion, doing this in multiple translations would be insane. So here's what I want you to do. All right. There's three pronouns, at least, that occur a lot in this section. He, him, his. All right. Identify which ones, all right, because you've you got to think through this real closely. Identify which ones, which, what's God, what's man, what's Jesus, all right? In the ESV text of Hebrews, what's God, what's man, what's Jesus? You might want to, I don't know, circle the, the God ones, underline the Jesus ones, put asterisk around the man ones, I don't know. Some convention might make it easier for you. So spend a few minutes doing that. And does anybody need a writing utensil? Okay. How about a pencil? Anybody else? All right. Who is he, his, him? take into consideration verse 5, yeah. Maybe the 
All right, 30 seconds ish. I don't know, maybe a little longer. All right, let's discuss. All right. All right, it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8 specifically, specifically, what is man? All right. Um, just out of curiosity, who are we talking about here? Who's the man we're talking about? Mortal man. Mortal man. All right. What's that? In God. Okay. So what is man? Uh, I think you, ultimately, you're going to have to read this two, two ways. All right. Because the author of Hebrews, as we'll get to, definitely, I think, is reading it two different ways. What is man that you are mindful of him? So there's our him. Who's the him? Mankind. Also Jesus. Or the son of man... Jesus, also mankind. Because son of man just simply means someone who is born of another human. All right? um, when God calls Ezekiel son of man, he's not saying God. He's saying, you're a human. All right? That you care for him. Who's this? Man and Jesus. Okay, who's the you there? God. God the Father. Okay. You... God the Father made him, Jesus. Jesus, and man, for a little while, or a little, lower than angels, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, you, God, have crowned him, Jesus. Jesus, and man, 
with glory and honor, putting him everything in subjection under his Jesus and man. Now is where it gets tricky because we could totally cheat on the last ones. Okay. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. That's one sentence. Who's the him? Okay. Anybody disagree? I disagree. I think that's just talking about man. We'll get to why. In the, in put, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. Who's the he left nothing? God the Father. Out of his control. That's either Jesus or it's man. Or both. I assume you all think because you got the first him as Jesus that you also think it's Jesus there. Okay. I don't. I, I do actually think that's just man. Next sentence. At present, we... Uh, it's, it's author of Hebrews and people, right? People. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Man or Jesus? Jesus. Jesus. I think man. But, all right, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Who's, but we see him there. Clearly Jesus, because it identifies him, right? Namely Jesus, all right? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he... Jesus clearly might taste death for everyone. All right, here's my argument for why um, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Here's my argument for why that is man and not Jesus. All right, because it seems to me in verse 9 specifically, all right, that he says, now we see him and he has to identify who the him is we're talking about. I think he's changing the subject matter at that point. So in other words, I think the author of Hebrews reads Psalm 8 in its both its historical context and in its Trinitarian context. He sees both there. And he's trying to take his readers there because in the original context, you'd go, oh, this is clearly about mankind. And he's like, but now, all right, here's his argument, but now we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And at this point, the him, the he is identified, all right? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God, he, clearly Jesus, might taste death for everyone, all right? So that's why, and uh, I don't know, what do you think? That's why I think in the, that first or that second part of verse 8, the whole him, the whole he, him part of, well, excuse me, no, just the him, his part, that's all mankind. Specifically not Jesus, because at verse 9, he's now going to make the argument. Yes. Uh, Mike, first. So in the beginning of verse 8, where it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet, mm-hmm. you still think that's ambiguous between, it could either mean Jesus or man. And you're saying later yes. on in the verse, when it gets to 9, that's when he makes it very clear which one he's talking about. Is that your argument? Nope. I, I think, um, close though. I mean... <laughs> So, theologically speaking, all right, what, everything on earth, what, who, who is that all subjected to? Who's, who's that? Us. And Jesus. All right? That's the whole point of the crea- what happened in creation. All right? God subjected everything to mankind. That was his point, because mankind was supposed to be God's stewards on the earth. And they were supposed to put everything in subjection to them. Do we see everything in subjection to us? Not yet. No, we don't see everything in subjection to us. All right? But we also see, from a New Testament theology perspective, everything is put under subjection to Jesus. But what is put under subjection to Jesus? All right? Where, what are the two locales that are put under subjection to Jesus? All right? Mankind, all right? Mankind, original mandate was just to be ruling over the earth. That's our job. Still is. All right? Totally still is. Nothing rescinds that. As far as I know, anyway. 
But Jesus, all right, is supposed to rule over heaven and earth. In the words of the Creed, all right, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. All right, Christ will reign over both realms because he reigns over everything. Okay, so my argument here is theologically, if you are a, all right, a, a theologically correct person, which would be Jew and Christian, just from this particular piece of theology, all right, what is supposed to be subject to man? All of the earth. All right? Now, why is man having such trouble getting the entire earth in subjection to him? Sin. This also comes from the beginning of the creation narrative. So, man is trying to subject the earth, all right? Man is trying, and that's, that's kind of their role. So, when I see, when he goes and halfway through verse 8, and he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Can equally apply to both man, all right, and Jesus. Now, now, is everything in, in subject to Jesus? In a sense now, but Jesus is currently conquering his enemies. All right? So in a sense, there are still re- rebels that need to be destroyed. So is Jesus reigning? Absolutely. Are some of them still not destroyed yet? Yes. All right? So depending on the way you look at it in terms of Jesus. So I think here, it's totally talking about, about man. And specifically the reason why is verse 9. Because I think in verse 9, we see the author shift and take a double reading of Psalm 8. Alright? Now, we see another person who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Alright? I don't think he would need to say, namely Jesus there, unless he's assuming his readers in the previous verse was reading that as about humans. That's my argument. I don't know. You can take it or leave it. Um, that's why I think ultimately, for the author of Hebrews, you have to take all the he's and him's in that psalm as both. All right, because they're both there. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Um, now, I don't think we talked about the he's in verse 10, did we? Okay, let's do it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, who is this he? I think in the context of the psalm, we're talking about God specifically. Even though we also know that Jesus was the agent through which all creation was made. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And here's why I think you have to take the first he is God the Father. Because he makes the foundation, the, the founder of their salvation perfect. That's Jesus. So God the Father makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For... Here's another one. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, the those is probably pretty obvious. That's people, right? All have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Who's those two he's? Jesus. Jesus. Why? He's the brother. He's the brother. All right? He who sanctifies. Who sanctifies? Jesus sanctifies. And the parallel between those two sentences. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Right? We are not the brothers of God the Father. The friend of God the Father. We are not the brothers of God the Father. We are the brothers of Jesus by adoption. Okay? So... You've got to think through very hard on this one, through the argument. All right? And you can take it multiple ways. Quite convinced I'm right on that. I'll let you make up your own mind. Uh, real quickly, the one statement about little, all right, or little bit, or little while, and we will be done. Um, that, that is there in Septuagint. And it can both mean little in terms of space or little in terms of time. So this is going to be one that you would... Totally, if you're reading the Septuagint of the Old Testament, you would be going, is it space or is it time? But it would be in the Hebrew, in Hebrews. You would go, um, was Jesus made a little bit lower than the angels, just like man is? Yeah. Just a little lower? Yeah. Or is the focus for a little while? Namely, 33 years. Seems to be 
So a lot of people take it as little while, and so that's why you will see little while there. All right? Where in the Old Testament, man was not made for a little while, at least in our time reckoning, uh, lower than the angels. Quite a long time made lower than the angels. But then again, according to Paul, we will judge angels. So then, One day. What are the ESV translators thinking about seven? Seven and nine basically are translated the same way. Mm -hmm. But if you were translating it and you thought seven was talking about man, you wouldn't put a little while. You'd just say a little lower. I think if nine yeah. talks about Jesus. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say the ESV translators agree with me, um, obviously. Um, and I think the ESV translators see it as both. Because from a Christological interpretation of the psalm, psalm the author of Hebrews is clearly applying it to both, I, I think. This is about man, and this is about Jesus, just as much. Um, because that's how he makes his argument. Okay, that is it for today. Uh, we will continue on, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Chip? We need to further define the last couple of pronouns in the last verse. It says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Those are not just men, those are the elect. Correct, yeah. As well as them, calling them brothers. That's also the elect. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Any other notes? Okay. Man, those pronouns. There's so many he's and him's. It's, it's legitimately hard, but I think a very fun question. Let's, uh, let's be dismissed for now then. Medina, will you please pray for us?